<clears throat> well, I'm uh, getting near the ripe old age of 50 here. Some of you are saying that's old. Some of you are saying it's young. Uh, but I noticed as I've gotten older that I started caring about the quality of certain things in my life more than I used to. For example, when I was in my early 20s, I loved to eat at McDonald's and Taco Bell. Uh, now, not so much. Uh, I don't crave a Big Mac, and thank you very much. Yo no quiero Taco Bell. Uh, instead, just the thought of a meal at home, cooked well, maybe with a vegetable or two, sounds much better to me. Um, also, as far as wanting quality, I noticed it when I turn on Hulu or when we used to have Netflix at night, right? Maybe you've happened, this has happened to you. You turn on the TV, you're like, there's like 5,000 things to watch, so you start scrolling, right? And you keep scrolling. And then you maybe watch a preview or two. And I'm a little bit of a drama king when it comes to this. I'll go, ah, oh, there's nothing on, right? Okay, it's not that there's nothing on. There's thousands of things on at our fingertips. But what I mean is, there's nothing on good that I really want to see, right? I don't want just any show. I want a good show. Uh, one last example of uh, where I know that I want the good stuff, the quality stuff, comes from um, a recent vacation to Florida. My family's very blessed. We got to go to Florida. We went to St. Petersburg, which if you know Florida, it's on the Gulf Coast. Um, and uh, we just happened to be staying at a place where we ran into this group of travelers. It was a group of older ladies from Minnesota, right? They were having a childhood reunion of sorts. They were doing some touring around. And we ran into them over and over again. So we got talking with them at the poolside one night. And our girls were splashing away happily. And we're kind of exchanging traveler stories. Hey, what's good to see? Where do you go? That kind of thing, because they knew the area. And one of the ladies chirped up and got excited. And she told us about this shopping area that was just a few beach towns down the road. And he says, oh, it's got tons of stores filled with good tchotchke. Right, and uh, I, I was born in Minnesota. That's where my extended family is. So her use of the word tchotchke uh, got my attention there because I thought this is something that my aunt or my uncle would say, right? It's full of good tchotchke. Uh, if you don't know what tchotchke is, it's uh, souvenirs, cheap, like ashtrays, you know, refrigerator magnets, bumpers. That's tchotchke, right? It's just junk, right? And so the fact that she said it's good tchotchke, I thought... That's a contradiction in terms. You can't have good and tchotchke together. It's like, it's like excludes ch good, you know. So I listened politely, uh, kind of remembering my, my Minnesota heritage, but I was not convinced about this good tchotchke. So the next day, which just happened to be our last day of our vacation in a warm spot, uh, when we had to choose what we were going to do as a family, surprise, surprise, we did not make a beeline for the tchotchke district of St. Petersburg and load up our suitcases. Uh, instead, we opted to go to a place we had already visited once, the St. Petersburg Pier. I just got to recommend it uh, to the Harveys in the back there. Um, it's a great place, mix of nature, beautiful urban design, fountains for the kids to play in, playgrounds, good for the soul, and 94% tchotchke-free. So uh, <laughs> we wanted the good stuff with our limited vacation time. Started with enjoying which one another, which we could have done anywhere. Uh, but it was heightened by having a nice place to enjoy the day. And maybe you can relate to some of those examples, or maybe you have your own, where you are not satisfied with just something, but you want the good stuff. Maybe it's not with what you eat or what you see on TV, but more likely than not, there's some area of life where you don't just want something, but you want the good stuff, something of quality. I think probably further, when, when there is something... Uh, when there's good stuff out there to be found, we all want to know about it, right? 
if there's a good restaurant in Anchorage, I don't know Anchorage very well, but if you know of one, tell me. If you uh, know of a good movie or documentary or something, we all want to know about it. Or somewhere to go, uh, or recommended to someone this past week, the Kastner Ice Caves. They hadn't been yet, so I got to see if they went there. We all want to know about these things so that we can share in them, uh, whatever they are, because we want to build our lives around and fill our lives with not just stuff, but the good stuff. And so today's message from our Bible is about the good stuff. And really more than that, it's about the best stuff because it is about Jesus. And uh, I'm assuming most of us in this room are probably Christians. And if that's you, you probably already know that in Jesus, we have found the very best stuff, even though it's not stuff, it's a person. We find the best stuff in Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. So we're gonna read a passage this morning that highlights the surpassing excellence of Jesus as he's being showcased in front of a large group of people in the crowded streets of Jerusalem just days before he dies. And it's uh, no surprise to most of us in this room that in Jesus we have found the good stuff. We have found someone who is truly remarkable and special, even against the backdrop of everyone throughout human history. But what might be surprising to some of us this morning is that this showcase of Jesus's surpassing excellence is followed by a call for us to respond to. So in other words, it's not enough for us to just kind of look at Jesus's life and his ministry and conclude, wow, what a great guy, and then go on with our lives as if he didn't exist. Mark's gospel has been written in such a way that we see Jesus's greatness and are called to respond to it in a certain way. The way that he writes about Jesus's excellence is intended to provoke us to something. So the question I want us to kind of chase down this morning as we read here is, well, how should we respond to the surpassing excellence of Jesus? Or if you want to just say it another way, you could say that, well, once you realize that you found the good stuff, something truly unique and wonderful in the person of Jesus, how should that change our lives? He doesn't just have the good stuff, he is the good stuff, but how does that impact us here and now? Let's find out. So if you've got your uh, Bibles in front of you or on your phone there, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. Mark 12, 28. I'll give you a second to turn on over to there. And just to remind you of where we're at in Mark's gospel, Jesus has uh, finished his public ministry and he's come up uh, to the, I'll call it the scary city of Jerusalem at this time, knowing that people are out to get him, so to speak. And he's not fearful of that, but he's going straight on into it. And he's been in the temple area in the center of Jerusalem. And he's been debating this series of opponents. And then uh, after that, we get to this one scene continuing on there in the temple where Jesus interacts with this one particular guy who's been watching all of this. So let's read here in chapter 12, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. This is Jesus and these other groups. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, well, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul all your mind and all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You're right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Okay, let's just pause right there. Um, the first point in this sermon is simply this. Jesus is surpassingly excellent. And Mark makes this point through Jesus' interaction with this teacher of the law. And we need to understand when we look at this that this scene is not just in isolation, but that really this is the climax of this entire series of challenges that Jesus has been facing in the temple up to this point. Uh, if you remember back in chapter 11, Jesus shows up in Jerusalem with the triumphal entry, a lot of fanfare, a lot of pomp and circumstance. And basically he's throwing down the gauntlet and claiming to be the Messiah here. And the question in the minds of all the people there, and think of how crowded it would be, Passover time in the big city here, the question in their minds is, is this guy really the true Jewish king or not? Does he really have the goods or is he just an arrogant pretender? And so uh, certain groups come and keep on coming to put him to the test. Uh, by the end of Mark chapter 11, he got challenged by jointly by the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders, basically all the leadership of the Jews. And they said, hey, by whose authority are you doing this? They're like, get out of here, kids, scram, right? But Jesus responded to them and continued teaching. Last week, Pastor Mark talked about this parade of opponents that kept on coming after him. The Pharisees with the Herodians, who were very opposite groups, the Sadducees, and all of these different groups were bringing these catch-22 trick questions to try to trip Jesus up and trap him, but none of them are successful. And time and time again, Jesus is batting a thousand and knocking these questions out of the park. He's amazing people with how he's answering here. And then we get to this particular teacher in the law here. Really, like I say, it's at the climax of this series of challengers. And this is Mark's way as a gospel writer of putting the exclamation point on how well Jesus has already answered all of these challengers. Now, this particular guy who's interacting with Jesus, he's different from these previous groups that have come up because he's just a guy. He's not a group. He didn't come with a preset question ready to trip him up. Um, but he asks his question, we're told in the text, because he sees that how well Jesus has already answered. He says, well, he's answering really well. I got a question for him. And so he doesn't ask a trick question, but he asks an honest question. Isn't an honest question nice? He says, well, of all the commandments, which one's the most important? And this is the, a normal kind of question that people might ask, uh, you know, kicking around in that day. I mean, think about that. He studies the law all the time. And there's a lot of Jewish laws in the Old Testament. So this guy says, well, hey, what, you know, look at the whole thing here. What does it all boil down to? What does God really want here? And the way that Jesus answers is he doesn't just leave it at love God, love your neighbor, very quick and, and pithy there. Well, that's how we usually summarize what he's teaching here. But he actually fattens out his answer a little bit. This is how Jesus responds here. He says like this in verse 29. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Okay. So his response, it's a, it's a mashup of two different Old Testament passages, one from Deuteronomy 6, one from Leviticus 19. The scribe would have known these passages well. And notice how Jesus starts. He starts with, hear, O Israel. This is known as the Shema. Shema just means hear. Uh, and it's basically like this kind of very brief Jewish statement of faith, like a profession of faith. And it's about the uniqueness of Yahweh, that he alone is God and therefore worthy to be worshiped. But notice that then the command follows. First, there's the statement of who God is. And then in light of that, the command comes to love God. So this is not just a command out of the vacuum. What's the greatest commandment? Oh, here's the greatest commandment. No, he starts uh, before the commandment saying a very important truth. God is God alone. Therefore, love him. And notice the totality, the wholeheartedness that Jesus really emphasizes here in responding to him. He says, well, in light of the uniqueness of God the Father, how are we supposed to love him? With all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And uh, I'll come back to this point a little bit later, but just notice that he says the greatest commandment really is wholehearted devotion. It's everything back to God in light of who he is. And he says the second commandment basically flows out of the first. If you love God so wholeheartedly, loving your neighbor as yourself is going to follow that. And that is a great answer. And you have to notice that the way that Mark tells the story, there's this emphasis in the way he does it on how well Jesus answers this particular teacher of the law. In verse 28, he asks Jesus this question, why? Because we see that he's already given a good answer. It says that explicitly. Verse 32, uh, the teacher of the law says, well said, teacher. And he says again, you're right in saying, right? So he affirms Jesus' answer to his question twice, even though up to this point, the other scribes uh, and teachers seem to be a little hostile toward Jesus. So he's, he's saying, yeah, you got it. And then in verse 34, Mark notes that after this long series of challengers, which has been going on for some time now, from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. He's the last man standing, as it were, in those temple courts. And this is Mark's way of showing in this grand showdown in the temple in a busy Passover season with lots of people that Jesus has clearly won the day. He's amazed the crowds with his answer so far. He's shown that his, his opponents misunderstood scripture and misunderstand God. And now he caps it off with this excellent answer to this honest question. Even though, even his opponent has to concede, yeah, you nailed it, that's it, I agree. And the way that Jesus takes on all comers and answers well is the first way that Mark shows the surpassing excellence of Jesus. Now, there's a second way he does the same thing here. And he does it by asking his own question. Jesus um, uh, shows through his question to the crowds that they underestimated, underestimated the Messiah all along. He was saying, you know, you guys talk about the Messiah, but it seems like you've misunderstood him. Your vision of him is too small, and Jesus is about to correct that picture. So let's pick up the, the passage here in verse 35. 
story continues on here. It says, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why did the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord, so then how can he be a son? The large crowd listens with delight. Okay, let's pause right there. This is what's going on here. Now that there's no other challengers stepping up to the plate to take Jesus on and try to shut him down, Jesus offers this challenge of his own uh, to the crowds. And he's basically questioning the limited understanding that the teachers of the law had regarding the Messiah. Now, their basic teaching we find here is that they say, well, hey, Messiah, he's the son of David, the descendant of David. And Jesus isn't denying that, but what he's saying is, and what he's challenging is, is that's all that the Messiah was. And so he quotes Psalm 110, which we just read a portion of there, to point out that this Messiah was not just a descendant of David, but somehow he was of much greater importance than David. And he does this in verse 36. Uh, he says, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll put your enemies under your feet. In other words, he's saying, David goes, Yahweh, my Lord, said to his Lord, his boss, his ruler, sit at my right hand. And his question to the crowds, Jesus' question to the crowd exposes that even David recognized the superiority, the greatness of the Messiah in a way that the teachers of the law weren't recognizing in their day. His bottom line was that the scribes that he'd been dialoguing with here had a deficient view of the Messiah, who Jesus is clearly claiming to be as he's come into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. But Jesus is setting him straight. He's saying, Messiah is bigger, much more important than you imagined. And then after Jesus asks this question to the crowds in verse 37, no one steps forward to answer. Instead, it says that the large crowd listened to him with delight. Okay, so this is how Mark lays it out for the surpassing excellence of Jesus. First, he shows how Jesus answers challenger after challenger impeccably. And then he shows that the Messiah is much bigger and much more important than the scribes understood. His point here, Jesus is surpassingly excellent. And this is the point that Mark is drawing his truth through these, all these challengers. People are saying, is this guy really the Messiah? Well, let's see, does he pass the test? Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, scribes, elders, chief priests, teachers of the law. He doesn't just pass the test, he passed every test. Every curveball, wacky question that people throw at him, he hits out of the park. And no one's stepping up anymore to ask him any more questions. He's got the floor. I mean, it's quite a picture when you think of it. Uh, it's kind of reminded me of like any kung fu movie you've ever seen where it's like the one guy versus the whole crowd and he takes on everyone with you know, all the weapons and everything and he, he knocks them all out and he's the last man standing. Only it's a theological debate, not a kung fu movie here. But his point here, Jesus is surpassingly excellent. And we know that in this room well, let me ask a pointed question, and I, I want to ask it respectfully, but so what? So, Mr. Gospel writer Mark, uh, you've made your point here. 
You've made your case that Jesus is surpassingly excellent. But what difference does that make to your audience? And what difference does it make to this audience that's separated by 2,000 years and a whole lot of plane travel? This is the original question that I want us to focus on. How should we respond to the surpassing excellence of Jesus? Since he's so unique, so wonderful, how does that change our lives? Does that mean we read a book on Jesus once a year? Does that mean we study his leadership principles and try to apply those, uh, emulate his style? Does that mean we buy some Jesus merchandise to let people know that we're a fan? What's the appropriate response? And the answer to that question is going to be found in the rest of our passage in this comparison between two groups of people that are going to come forward in the temple courts there. They happen to be in the temple at that time, and Mark kind of uses Jesus' interaction with them to make a point. So let's continue reading down in verse 38 and get the answer to this question here. Now, the first group of people in this contrast is the teachers of the law. Verse 38 says, As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Okay, that's the first group. Uh, second group isn't really a group, it's just an individual, a single, lonely, poor little widow. Verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything all that she had to live on. And then that's really the end of the scene. Cut scene after this long time of Jesus and his disciples being in the temple courts, being examined, they all head out and the story moves on here. So get this, this lengthy kind of fanfare of Jesus in the spotlight in the temple is finally ending here. Uh, challenger after challenger comes and it's all capped off with this contrast between these teachers of the law and the little widow here. And I believe that Mark recorded that, uh, not just because that's what actually happened at the time, which obviously it was, but also I think in this contrast between those two groups, he's intending to provoke his audience a little bit, including you and me, to consider where our hearts are at in response to what we have been shown about Jesus so far. Now, uh, the teachers of the law in this case here are the negative example. Jesus says in verse 38, watch out for the teachers of the law. Beware, don't be like them. And if we think, well, why, why does he say that? Why should people watch out for these teachers of the law? He says, well, it's because of what their hearts are longing for. Jesus has just taught with this one individual that once you realize, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the appropriate heart response is to surrender everything to him. Love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all yourself. Love God wholeheartedly and completely with every bit of your being. But for the teachers of the law and focus here, what's on their hearts? Verse 38 says, they like 
Or you could say they wish, they want. It's a verb of desire here, right? So they wish, they want, they desire to walk around in flowing robes, to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. In other words, uh, and these are the people who are supposed to know, right? They are the teachers of the law. Despite all their knowledge, all their study, all their meditation as teachers of God's word, they hadn't followed the greatest commandment, which was just talked about. They haven't loved God with utter abandonment, but they loved themselves. And they haven't loved their neighbors, but they've exploited the weakest among them, devouring widows' houses, quite a picture there, to build up their own bank accounts, uh, to show off. They've exchanged the good stuff, the very best stuff, God himself, for tchotchke. Not even the good tchotchke. But the result of this is this grim saying in verse 40 where Jesus says, these men will be punished most severely. But this is a warning of the heart here, right? Jesus says, watch out for them. Don't let your heart cave in, inwards on itself, and love all the stuff. Don't fall in love with the stuff because it's not going to end well for that type of person. And in contrast, right after that, we get this example of a kind of person that Jesus does want his disciples to be like, this destitute widow who catches Jesus' eye. Uh, Again, you got to imagine the crowds. This is Passover in the big city here. Everyone's there. Men, Jewish men were required to be there. Big crowds. Think of like the biggest crowd you've been a part of. It's kind of like that here. Probably against that backdrop, I'm guessing, maybe not many people noticed her. Maybe no one else cared about her. She's just this forgettable nobody in the background to probably everybody else. But Jesus sees something in her action that stops him in his tracks. Jesus sees her put in these two tiny little coins worth hardly anything. He calls his crew over him and says, get over here, boys. You got to see this. Verse 43, calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow's put in more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. Uh, I'm reading today from the NIV, the 2011 version. So they smoothed out that verse a little bit. Uh, If you were to translate those last few clauses a little bit more literally, it would sound something more like, everything she had, she threw in. That is her whole life. She threw in her whole life. She gave God everything, just like the greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart, despite her poverty. And in doing so, she gives us this example that answers our question. How should we respond to the surpassing excellence of Jesus? Our appropriate response is abandoned devotion to him. Total abandonment, absolute surrender, unconditional devotion. This is the stuff that gets Jesus' attention and makes him say, that is it. Look at that, boys. That's how you do it. She threw in her whole life and left nothing on the table. And that theme of abandoned devotion ties in to the first part of our sermon about the scribe who asked about the greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. I mean, we kind of get the repetition here, right? I mean, do you hear the volume in the depth that Jesus goes on about how we ought to love God? He could have said it a lot simpler, but he's making a point here. And if you missed it the first time, Mark puts that before us again in the mouth of the scribe who answers Jesus. Well said, teacher. You're right. You nailed it. There's no other God but God. Love him to love him with all your heart, all your understanding, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's more important than all those burnt offerings and sacrifices. That is a whole lot of repetition, a whole lot of volume in our text here. And if we miss it the second time, interestingly enough, Mark puts the same thought in there a third time as Jesus wraps up his time in the temple courts in the example of this little woman. He shows us this example of a poor widow who lays it all out there and Jesus goes, there it is, abandoned devotion. That is the right response to God. Um, now, you might have noticed that in Jesus' answer to the scribe and in the widow giving all she had, that that absolute devotion is directed toward God the Father and not towards Jesus himself, who's standing there in the temple. And yet I'm claiming here in my second point that our appropriate response to the surpassing excellence of Jesus is abandoned devotion. So how do I get there? Okay, we've got to realize we're dealing with Jewish monotheism here in our text, right? How do I get from these, exa uh, these examples of abandoned devotion to God the Father to saying our response to Jesus and his excellence is abandoned devotion. Well, I'll tell you, and I'll make my case quickly by just pointing out three things. Uh, first, abandoned devotion, uh, this unconditional surrender to Jesus, it's already been explicitly stated in Mark's gospel back in chapter eight as a prerequisite for becoming his disciple. Uh, you probably remember the scene in chapter 8, right? Jesus says, well, who do the crowds say I am? Who do you, my disciples, say that I am? You're the Messiah. Right. And then right after that, verse 34 from chapter 8, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's a death sentence. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. So this abandoned devotion to Jesus, it's already... Uh, explicit as a requirement for discipleship. Second, if you look at the whole of Mark's gospel, I believe there's this very strong breadcrumb trail going through the whole thing that gives examples of people's total abandonment, total devotion to Jesus as being an appropriate response. Levi, the tax collector, leaving his tax booth, chapter two. Jesus' call to all his disciples in chapter eight, which we just read, the rich young ruler in chapter 10 who was called to give up everything and follow Jesus, but who didn't follow through with that. My favorite example, blind Bartimaeus, chapter 10, right? While he's still blind, he throws off his cloak and runs to Jesus. And when he gets his sight, he doesn't say, thanks, see you later. He gets on the road and goes up the hill to Jerusalem with Jesus, even though at that point, everyone know, trouble's brewing, nothing good's ahead. But Bartimaeus follows then you get the two examples here. And then you get this really quirky one later on in chapter 14, which you probably know well. Uh, it's one of Jesus' disciples who ends up running away buck naked 
when Jesus is arrested. Okay, and it's a little weird, a little weird passage. But it's this other example of this total abandonment of having nothing in the following after Jesus. So there is a breadcrumb trail going through the entire gospel about the value of total abandonment to Jesus or to the Father. But third, and this is the one that really seals it for me, it's the place that where we're at in the entire gospel. It begs the question, okay, crowds, and okay, readers, us, what are you gonna do with this Jesus, this man claiming to be the Messiah? How are you going to respond to him? I mean, you guys probably remember uh, from Pastor Eric's teaching, the whole first half, the first eight chapters of Mark are asking the question, who is this guy? Who is he really? Who is this guy? And the disciples have come up with an answer in chapter eight, but now Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's gone public with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and thrown down the question. He has just been on showcase here for quite some time in front of the crowds and in front of these Jewish leaders, chief priests, and all these groups who come to grill him, basically. And we've seen him, and we've heard his answers. He has been tested time and time again and has passed with flying colors that so even his opponent has to say, well said, teacher, you nailed it. And Mark is poking us and prodding us as if to say, okay, ladies and gentlemen, you've seen enough, you've heard enough. Here he is. How will you respond to him? And the answer is given in our passage today in this twin reminder that total, totally abandoned devotion to God and thus also to his chosen Messiah is an appropriate response. So that's why I say, this is what our heart's response ought to be to the excellence of Jesus. It's abandoned devotion to him. Uh, just as we wrap up here, I want to talk real briefly about application. Uh, first things first, uh, are you convinced about the surpassing excellence of Jesus? I'm assuming most of us are, uh, but maybe someone here is still checking Jesus out. And if that's you, I'm glad you're here. Um, let us know if we can help you or whoever you came with can help you with that. But if that's you, your application is thoroughly check him out and put him to the test too. Do your homework. Life is short and here before you have the most influential man of history, bar none. If he really is the way, the truth, and the life and the only way to God the Father, as the Bible says, we better get that answer right. And I would encourage you to start by reading the four gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are the accounts of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. Start there because that's where everything else that's been written about him is going to be referring back to. But for the rest of us, uh, we're already convinced about the surpassing excellence of Jesus. And therefore, our application is to offer abandoned devotion to him. Fair enough, but what does that look like uh, to you and me? I think that's a really tricky question because we're dealing with an issue of the heart here, right? Jesus warned the crowds to watch out for these teachers of the law because of what their hearts were set on. They wanted the tchotchke, the robes, the greetings, the best places to sit. Their desire was all about self-fulfillment. The widow, on the other hand, was ready and willing to give it all away, her very life, because she knew that nothing plus God was, was far greater 
than all the knickknacks in the world, better than the trappings. She just wanted God and gave it all to him. So I think for most of us, our application really has to start with an assessment of what do we really love? What do our hearts really want in life? I think that's a tricky issue because our hearts can trick us, right? How do you know? Uh, We might start by looking at where do we spend our money? How do we spend our time? How do we leverage our skills, the gifts that God's given us? Uh, What do we use those things for? And you could, I don't know uh, how many people actually would do this seriously, but you could write out your weekly schedule and say, where's my time spent? You could look at your receipts on your online banking or your credit card statement and say, where's my money gone to in the past month? You could review your browsing history online, look at your Amazon purchases. Just imagine, I mean, we, we live in a, in a world flooded with data, right? If you didn't know yourself, but you were suddenly presented with all the data on your life, the places you go, your time, your money, what, would, what kind of picture would that paint about what your loves are? What would that say? And I think once we have that kind of assessment and say, ah, this is where my loves are and here are some that are a little off base, the second step is that we gradually uh, starve those, if I can say that. We pull away our time. We pull away our talent, our treasure from the things that have wrongly captured our hearts and we redirect those resources to God. So maybe if it's with time, you spend maybe more time in God's word Maybe with, with your conversations, you start talking about where you're reading scripture, what's going on, what are you, what, what are you getting from that? Maybe you find uh, a Christian's missions agency that's doing really good work and you give money to that. Or you find a way to use your gift for crafting or serving or teaching and you use what you've been given in a way that glorifies God. Oh, did I mention we need some summer <laughs> children's workers? Hmm. What a coincidence, just a thought. Seriously though, um, when we do this, we don't want to do it just kind of robotically and like I'm just going to grit my teeth and give God glory, right? Uh, But we do it prayerfully as we reallocate our heart's resources. We say, God, you know, I want to want you more. Help me to really see and understand on a deep level your surpassing greatness and that I have found what's best in life. Captivate my heart and help me to Give my all to you out of that, which is what you deserve. Let me pray. Lord, you are good. You are really good. Um, In a deep way, Holy Spirit, convict us of that. Your beauty, your greatness, your goodness to us, that we would be overwhelmed and eagerly Lay it all down for you with our whole hearts. Uh, we're not there yet, Lord. Uh, help us to get rid of the tchotchke and to lean into what's good in you. For your glory, by your grace. In Jesus' name.